We are in Philippians chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, that'd be the place to go. Philippians chapter 3. This is actually the same passage that we were in last week. We're just going to look at this uh, in a little bit different way. I told you we kind of split this into two separate messages. Uh, Last week I started with an extended uh, illustration, an an extended picture of a man who uh, was in the waters, and I can't retell the story. And by the way, it wasn't a true story. I had some confusion on that. That was just a made-up story to illustrate a point. Anyway, a guy ends up in the water, he's got a, a leather sack full of 700, over 700 ounces of gold that he thought was going to give him a new life. He thought this would mean everything to him. And all of a sudden, he finds that he can't swim without it. And he's got to cut off that which he thought was gain to him in order to live. That which he thought was gain was actually great loss. And I told you my, my goal there was to get you in a spiritual sense to look at who you are in your works before God, your righteousness, who you are um, in doing good things and in loving people, that all of those, if you're trusting in them, are a great liability to you. So where we tried to get last week was this, guard against self-sufficiency. This isn't self-sufficiency in every sense. This is self-sufficiency before God himself in a saving way that you would never come to God and say, look at all that I have done, Lord. Surely you would... That's a self-sufficiency that needs to be put to death. So our goal was to say, guard against self-sufficiency. And this is what the passage says, absolutely. That's the way we would put it negatively, guard against self-sufficiency. But we would also put it positively, and here's what I would say today, and glory in your Savior. Guard against self-sufficiency and glory in your Savior. I'm in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul begins this section with something we looked at last week. He says to the Philippian church, look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. 
last week we looked at this, that, that, that there was a common problem in New Testament churches in how they interacted with Judaism. Because people were coming to Christ, both the Gentiles and Jews, Gentiles are, are non-Jewish people, both were coming to Christ, and now this, this controversy began. Well, how Jewish does a person have to be to be a Christian? What Jewish rites do they have to follow? What things do they have to observe in order to be a Christian? Many were saying that, that adherence to the customs of Judaism, the law, was what Gentile converts needed to do to be saved. They had failed to realize that the grand purpose of the law was, was not to provide righteousness before God through outward work and things that were done by us as human beings. It was meant to foreshadow the one who would do it on our behalf. It's very different. Paul says in another place that the law was, was as if a schoolmaster meant to bring you to Jesus Christ. The law was also meant to show you your sin. It was meant to show you your need for him. So the law works like a great mirror that is held up. And as we look at ourselves in this mirror of the law, we see that, that we're destitute, that we have nothing before God, that we could possibly have any claim on him. So the law shows us our sin and then shows us the way to the one, the only one who can overcome it. This was the purpose of the law and these Judaizers, as some theologians call them, had missed the point of it begun to see the law and the rituals contained in the law as a basis for their right standing before God rather than a preparation for the righteousness that he would give in Christ. At the top of all those things, if there was a list of all of those, those rites and rituals that those Jewish people were focusing on, at the top was the right of circumcision. And this is why Paul deals with it here. Paul contrasts so strongly by saying, we are the circumcision. We'll come back to that word in just a second, but, but look with me at this verse. We are the circumcision, verse 3. Who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh three identifiers here. You can see them very clearly. We are the circumcision. What's the markers? Who worship by the Spirit of God. And you've got to understand here, as we think of worship in this context, as Paul's using this word, it's actually not the usual word that we would use in our, uh, think of we, we come to church and we do singing time and we typically call that worship time. Okay? This is not the word that Paul's using. What he's using is a word that has to do with the Old Testament, how they would worship God in what they did. That they would come to the temple and they would do certain things and they would make sacrifices and that was all their worship. It was worship through action. And this is what Paul is after. That we are truly the circumcision who worship God by action through the Spirit of God. The part of what Christ has done is, is he's won a victory and he now pours out his spirit and that spirit is in our life. The Holy Spirit is said to guide us and direct us and now our life looks different and we worship differently. He prompts us and he convicts us and he leads us and he transforms us and this is the work of the spirit and if you do not see that, you must ask the question, do I have the spirit? The spirit of God is meant to change. 
life. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He, God, condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, according to the Spirit. Later in Romans, he would say this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are the circumcision, these who are led by the Spirit. There's a second thing that Paul says, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ glory in Christ Jesus. Usually when we talk about glory, what we're talking about is, is a physical outshining of something. That, that you would see the, the glory of the sun as it hits your eyes. It's, it's the shining forth. And, and that's when we talk about glory uh, as a noun, that that shining forth is glory. Here it's a verb. Here it's we glory, we do something, we, we glory in Christ Jesus. Here it's equivalent to boasting in something. Now don't think of boasting inherently as negative. It, it can be very positive. You see, to boast in something, as it's used here, is to express your great high degree of confidence in something. You're glorying in something. So now take this back into this text. We glory in Christ Jesus. We express our great high degree of confidence in Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're glorying in Christ Jesus. And this is part of the identifying mark of we who, Paul says, that are the circumcision. We walk and we worship by the Spirit of God and we glory, we express our confidence in Jesus. This overwhelming all-encompassing conviction that Christ is all, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is our hope, that Christ is our life, that Christ is our King. We glory in Christ Jesus. Third thing, worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ. And is it any wonder that you would say this third thing and put no confidence in the flesh? We spoke of this last week. Confidence in the flesh and you see how these, these are contrasting with one another? If we're glorying in Christ, if we're expressing our full high degree of confidence in Him, it, does it fit to express high degrees of confidence in what you can do? So Paul says that we, that we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ and who He is for us and what He has done for us, and we look at what we can do in the flesh and we put no confidence there. We don't put any eggs in that basket. are the three identifying marks for, for this people that Paul wants to talk about. And listen again in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. It occurs to me that some might take issue today with what Paul is saying here. The fact of the matter is they took issue with what Paul was saying in his own day. In fact, I'm convinced that Paul means his language here uh, to be provoking to people who would hear him. He means it in some sense even to be offensive, and we'll, we'll get to that in a few moments. I think he, he meant people to come to a place where they would say something like, but wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. The people of Israel, this ethnic people group, they're the people of God. 
they're the circumcision. What, how is it that you can say that another group is circumcision? See, this is precisely the attitude that Paul is trying to tear down. See, circumcision in the Old Testament was an identifying mark of the ethnic people of Israel, Jewish people, okay? You can read about this in Genesis 17. It starts, and this, this right of the Jewish people was taken in a direction that it seems it was never intended to go. Paul will tell us that, that this right was, was, a, was an identifying mark of a relationship that Abraham had with God. Abraham, remember, was the one who, who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he has this relationship with God where he's believing God, he's faithful before God, and then God gives him this outward sign. Paul will tell us in Romans 4 that that, that was exactly what circumcision was meant to do. It was, it was meant to show a relationship. It was meant to, to be something outward that proved something inward. But the circumcision itself, outward sign? Was was that in itself effective for anything? Did that accomplish anything on its own? In fact, you can read through the Old Testament and you'll see circumcision come up a lot and it's really not aimed at the physical right. What you hear in the Old Testament as you hear about circumcision is you hear God calling to his people and you hear him saying things like this, circumcise your ears. There has to be something that happens in your heart and mind. Circumcise your ears so that you'll listen to me and so that you'll obey me. In the Old Testament, he would say something like this, circumcise your hearts. Paul would even later pick up on that language. Circumcise your hearts so that you'll love me. See, people often come to the Old Testament and they think, well, the Old Testament is all about laws. All God cared about in the Old Testament was that people did the right things. You know, one of the core things in the Old Testament is that they would love God. They would love God with their heart. Old Testament, you see the circumcision, not about the physical right. It, it wasn't meant to bring about a relationship. It was meant to show a relationship that already existed. So Paul says, we are the circumcision. Not these people that may have an outward sign, but we who come to Christ. I think Paul means this language to be shocking. Look at this again, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are circumcision. So earlier, this threat that was in the churches was those who were coming through saying that people had to submit to the right of circumcision in order to be rightly related to God and saved. does not say, look out for those who want to practice circumcision. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
but why doesn't he just use that word? Because he means to startle someone. You see, this, this word mutilation, it, it actually was used in the Old Testament. People would have recognized this word not in in regard to circumcision, it was actually used in reference to pagan practices of cutting oneself in worship before false gods and idols. People would mutilate themselves in worship to gods who were not the true God of Israel. Deuteronomy 14 says this, You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Why? For you are a holy that is separated to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is shocking because what Paul is doing is he's saying those who are in the churches promoting circumcision, promoting this outward right, they are now equated with pagans worshiping a false god. says this the way he does. We are a circumcision. The way he phrases this, you could almost underline the word the. We are, we are the circumcision. Truly, we are the circumcision. Those who come to Christ by faith, we are the ones who have turned from our own efforts, who have turned from our works. We are the ones who trust in and boast in Jesus Christ. These are the people of God. These are the ones under the blessings. These are the ones who have the promises. These are the real circumcision. Here's a principle I think Paul is advancing. The person and work of Christ are at the very center of person and work of Christ are at the very center of the true people of God. This is why I say what I say. Guard against self-sufficiency but glory in your Savior. Glory in your Savior. Paul goes on, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. might have thought was, was great gain to him. All of his works, all of the things that he could do in his flesh were now lost because if he was tempted to trust in those, it took him away from trusting in Jesus Christ. There was a moment where this all changed for him. I believe this is on the Damascus Road. You could read about this in Acts chapter 9 where, where God basically grabs Paul by the scruff of the neck and says, here is Jesus and his life utterly changed. At that moment, I believe that Paul counted all things as loss, all of his privileges, and now it's, it's all loss. Indeed, I count everything, verse 8, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The knowledge of Christ, to know Jesus. Is it worth that? 
Is it worth the loss of all things? The truth is that this knowledge is is more than mere cognition. You've got to understand this. Some of you really have to understand this because what you think makes a Christian is that that you believe that there was a guy named Jesus once and that there actually is a Sea of Galilee somewhere, okay? If I have certain facts about history right, yeah, wasn't he a first century peasant rabbi of some sort? Well, wonderful. I know Jesus. No, you don't. See, biblically, to know Jesus is, is to be related to him and united to him by faith. So, to know Jesus means that you're you're trusting in him that you're recognizing who he was and that that was all true and you believe he was the son of God and that you believe he went to the cross to bear your sin on your behalf and that now you're trusting fully in his sacrifice as opposed to trusting in what you can do as a person that's to know Christ that's to, to know him not just facts this is about relationship this is why Jesus speaks in these terms in John 17 he says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is it that great to know him? Is it that great to know him? Be careful here. Is it of surpassing value? You should ask the question, well, surpassing what, Kyle? Passing the value of what? Everything. See, the, the kind of devotion and single-mindedness that you see from Paul here isn't just a one-time event. In fact, it becomes a lifestyle. It's interesting, the language Paul used. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me real quick. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted. Okay, that's... Go book, get into some grammar. That counted, that is a perfect tense verb. That means something happened once, once it's done, and now it has ongoing effect. I counted it loss. I think that's Paul's conversion. I think that's the moment he met Jesus and he looked at his life and said, it's loss, if only I can know him, if only I can pursue him, if only I can be found in Christ. Done, I counted it loss. Now, here's what's interesting. Indeed, I count, that's present tense, which means it's ongoing, it's progressive, it's habitual, it's continual, it's customary. Indeed, I count ongoing, everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and now, presently, same thing, progressively, count them as rubbish. Why on earth is that important? Because when you get converted, when you come to Jesus, you look at your life and you say, in comparison with the righteousness that he offers, it's loss. It means nothing. It has no value for me before God. And then the next day after your conversion, you wake up and you look at everything in your life and you say, it's loss compared to pursuing him, compared to knowing him. Next week, we'll talk about what it looks like press on toward Christ to press on for the goal I think this is where it starts Paul deemed Jesus Christ worthy of all things even if it meant losing all things tomorrow and next week and 
what is Jesus worth? You can't be sure of all the things Paul lost to pursue Jesus Christ trust in him. The New Testament bears witness to the fact that Christians will have to count the cost to follow their Lord. It may mean loss of work. It may mean loss of friendships. It may mean loss of potential financial luxury. It may mean loss of family ties. Loss of property. It may mean, it does mean in many parts of this world right now, this morning, the loss of physical safety for you and your family. Realize that? It may mean the loss of a comfortable life. It may mean the loss of prestige. It may mean the loss of your reputation that you've spent your life trying to build. It may mean the loss of freedom. It may Again, in some parts of the world, and maybe ours someday, it may mean loss of your life. So we amen when we hear Paul say, oh, I count everything lost. Think about it. Kyle, you're getting a little bit too intense. For this Paul guy be a little radical. I think you should back it off a couple of shades. All right, let me let me just tell you this. I think all Paul was doing was recasting in his own words what his Lord had said. This is what we read in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often, church? Daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and his holy angels. This is all Paul is doing. This is, this is very radical. I'm here to tell you. I think that's the truth of the I count everything as lost, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here, the, the knowledge of Christ and this gaining of Christ are described in another way, and, and this we'll spend a couple of moments on, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll finish up. He says, to be found in him. To be found in Christ. Now, on a personal level, I love this kind of language. This this in Christ or in him language is used all over the New Testament. It's awesome language. In fact, a lot of times I, I sign my emails to, to, to some of you in Christ or in him. And this is what we mean. It signifies our union with Jesus by faith. 
our union with Christ, that our share in his death for us, our share in his resurrection for us, which guarantees our own. But you see, Paul defines this being in Christ both positively and negatively. First, to be in Christ means not having a righteousness of my own. the reason why last week we tried to kill self-sufficiency before God. The marker of partaking in Christ is that we look at all that we can do and all that we can be before God and we say it's meaningless. Jesus Christ is all. Okay? But a righteousness that isn't our own. It doesn't come by what we do. It doesn't come by law, but it comes by faith in Christ and it depends on Him. Look at this verse again, verse 9 draw a picture here. Be found in him. Here's what it means to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. Okay, so you could draw two pictures. One, there's really two options in, in life I guess. One is both of them are trying to be right before God. Okay, this, this is the goal. To be right before God. So how does it come? You've got one option. The first is that you have a righteousness that comes from you. You're the source of this righteousness. It flows down from the wonder that is you. And, and how does it come exactly? Through the law. This is the channel. This is the conduit through which this great, wonderful righteousness of your own comes just by your obedience. So it comes through law by what you do, but you're the source. Source, law, by what you do. Okay? It's a good picture. Good luck with that. The other one is, is this, and this is what it means to be found in Christ. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you need to become Christians today. You need to hear this. There is a righteousness or a right standing before almighty, holy, just God. There's a right standing. How does it come? First, the source is God himself. Wait a second. God himself? You mean, you mean I'm trying to stand before this holy God and God's helping me somehow? God's giving me something? That's right. God is the source, and it comes through Jesus Christ. He's provided Jesus Christ to be the means by which this righteousness, this gift from God, comes to you. And how does, how does it come to my account? How does it affect me? By faith in this Jesus. It's from God, through his Son, by faith. Those are the two pictures. This is the contrast that, that Paul is trying to, to draw for us. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to do, I'm going to do a theological sidebar. Okay? So if you don't like theology, just play with your iPhone for like five minutes. Okay? Here's, here's what we're going to do. What we're talking about here, people, really, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are journeying into the center of the Bible, right? What we're talking about is the doctrine of of theologians, justification. Justification means to gain a right standing before a holy God. Now, this word righteousness, you have to understand what we're reading right now. Righteousness is the exact same word in the Greek language as justify. Justification and righteousness. If, if we had a word that was righteousfy, that would be what Paul would use, but there wasn't. So, so this is what we're talking about, okay? 
it is essentially a courtroom concept that you are walking into a courtroom before God and he is going to render a verdict. And that's true, by the way. You will go into a courtroom. It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So we're going to face judgment. We're going to walk into a courtroom and, and, and you're going to be declared guilty or you're going to be declared righteous. The New Testament is saying that there is a transaction that happens in the eyes of God through faith in Christ. A person cannot ever work up enough of their own. This picture I painted, this my own righteousness that comes through the law by what I do, it won't ever work. That is the manifold witness of the New Testament. All over the Bible, we hear that people don't measure up and they never will before God. And so we have verses like this. Paul in Romans. And you're going to see, you're going to see common, I'm going to read you a few verses, you're going to see common elements. The first one is righteousness. The second one is Jesus Christ. The third one is faith. Okay, you watch now, the righteousness of God, or from God, that we just talked about, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, remember, made righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. Righteousness, Christ through faith. Galatians 2. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified or made right before God by works of the law. In other words, this picture doesn't work, Paul says. Everything we painted there, it's irrelevant. It doesn't work. But, through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Later in Galatians, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a start All this might sound very nice, but the question still remains, how exactly, how exactly can a holy, just God declare people to be righteous, to be not guilty, in fact, to be, to be right before him? Have you met me? I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. I'm not one that can stand before God. I have got a dark heart. You're a pastor. You're not supposed to have one. <laughs> okay, ask Eric. He knows. So I've got a problem. How can I stand before God? And, and, and this is maybe a bigger problem. How is it that God can call you or me righteous and still be holy himself? See, we don't do that. In a court of law, if, if you walked a criminal into a court of law and, and you said, well, generally a nice guy. For all that stuff you're trying to convict him on. 
And the judge said, eh, kind of winked at him. It's all right, boys and boys. What do you say about that judge? Is he a good judge? Is he a holy judge? Is he a righteous judge? No. This is, the, this is the conundrum we're in. How can God possibly say, you're righteous before me? Keep listening. This is the rest of Romans chapter 3. And these are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That big word there that nobody ever uses, propitiation, it means a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. God puts his own son forward to absorb all of the punishment that you and I deserve. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, so that God might still be just and holy. And at the same time, the justifier, the one who who makes right or who declares right those who have faith in Jesus. So the center of this issue, how on earth can God stay holy and call me right before him? Jesus Christ has took your punishment, the wrath of God on your behalf. This is the issue. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, for our sake, made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We often say, Jesus Christ died for you. In this verse, we could more accurately say, Jesus Christ died as you. All of your gossip, all of your hatred, all of your racism, all of your theft, all of your sexual immorality, all of it all of it heaped on the back of Christ as he walks the cross. God can call you righteous only because of him. And it's only by faith in him. Some of you probably need to come to that place today. Because even as I mentioned those types of sins, God may be bringing good. That might be a work of the Holy Spirit and we want to be sensitive to that. So so here's the issue. Here's what's at issue today. Jesus Christ died as a sufficient payment for your sin. That is applied to your account as you come to him by faith. Meaning, you put all your eggs in the Christ basket. You lean completely on him. You say, I have nothing to offer before God by myself. There is nothing that could, could make me righteous before him. It is all the cross. It is all Jesus. gospel like an 
insurance program that has accident forgiveness. So, so we come to Christ and we think, oh, well, good. I'm, I'm glad that, that he wiped out my, my negative. I'm glad he, he kind of cleared the record for me. And now, well, gosh darn it, I better do pretty well. He brought you back up to the zero line. Now go for it. You're going to need all the gusto. No. Christ paid your debt. He took your punishment. He took your wrath. He also gave you his righteousness. So God can express his grace. There's, there's, two, there's two things that happened at the cross. If you want to count this in a legal way, Jesus Christ came onto the scene and all of your guilt, all of your sin was accounted to his account. So that when he goes to the cross, he's bearing your sin. But something else happened. All of, did Christ have any sin, yes or no? No. Did Christ have any righteousness in himself, yes or no? Yes. The righteous son of God. So, so the righteous son of God takes all of your sin. It's accounted to him. What about his righteousness? It's accounted to God is saying, the, the sacrifice that I have provided in my son, your, your, your forgiveness is costly. It's not just as if you've never sinned. It's just as if God has determined to accept the sacrifice of his son on your behalf. And then it goes further. This righteousness of God that, that, that was fulfilled in Christ, that, that he kept the law, that he kept righteousness, that he kept perfect devotion to the Father that's now given to you. So it's not just as if you've never sinned, as if you're, you're back to square one. There is a positive righteousness, a gift given to you that you will stand before God and he will see you through the lenses of Jesus Christ, his son. This is absolutely astonishing. It's as if you were standing before God. If you could take a, like a glass vase and turn it upside down, it's a crimson tainted, tinted glass vase and you turn it upside down and you put it over someone you put it over yourself and you say now God sees me through this vase that is tinted with crimson it is a Christ tinted vase and now as God sees me he sees me not in my sin he sees me in the righteousness of Christ this is what it means to be in
skipped this verse last week for a reason. Paul said this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I skipped that because often I think we go right by those things and they're throwaway phrases for us. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you have any clue what in the Lord means to Paul? everything we just talked about, about him taking your sin, about him imputing righteousness to us, counting righteousness to us, that you're forgiven not because of anything you've done are doing or could ever do, but because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It means that God will always see you in the righteousness of his son, that your legal standing before him does not depend on what you can do or cannot do. This is what it means to be in Christ. And, and, and Paul wants to, to look at that and he says, rejoice in him. If you're in that situation, how could you not rejoice? Thank you. 